Man, it is great to see everybody here this morning. If you're online with us, we thank you for being with us. Welcome to, to our worship service. It is time for kids' church. So, like, half the room's getting ready to get up and leave. That's all right. Fifth grade and under, you guys are dismissed. The Shoulders family is waiting for you, and you're going to have a great time down there. Hey, before we jump into the message, uh, I just want to highlight a couple of things um, that, have, that are, have happened and are coming up. Uh, yesterday... We had a great Easter egg hunt, and it was so great to just see kids here. For the last couple of years, we've had to do those kind of events differently, you know, because of COVID, and so we, you know, it's just hard to do events with a lot of kids because of all that. And so yesterday, it was just great to see kids here and running around and and looking for Easter eggs. And so it was a, it was a really great day. And and if you missed it, I'm sorry, but uh, man, I, I want to encourage you to to try and and be a part of some of those events that are coming up. Next Sunday, we're going to begin a brand new series of messages. Um, if you don't usually worship with us, I just want to encourage you to, to be with us starting next week. We're going to start a new series called Pray Like This. And the reason we're going to do this series is, is simply because as kids, most of us grow up learning how to say our bedtime prayers, right? When we, we pray before a meal and we kind of pray the same prayer um, in those moments all the time. And as adults, we grow up and, and maybe we really haven't matured in our prayer life any. And maybe we even think, hey, does, what's the point in praying? Why do we pray? How do we pray? Does prayer even work? And so we're going to spend a couple of weeks talking about that. And I'm really excited um, to, to get into that because those questions deserve grown-up answers. They deserve grown-up answers. So I'm, I'm really excited for that series. And then next month, we've got um, a couple of things going on. In May, uh, May the 8th, Mother's Day is my favorite day of the year, or my favorite Sunday of the year, because we do baby day on that day, and anytime you bring little babies up front, it's always entertaining, and you never know what's going to happen, and so it's my favorite day of the year, and so if you uh, would like to participate in that, please let me know so I can get all the information I need and, and all that kind of stuff, but, but hey, it's going to be a great day, and, and then in June... Uh, parents especially mark this on your calendars june the 5th through the through the 9th uh is our vacation bible school and and we're pumped about being able to have a real vacation bible school a regular vacation bible school again and so there's going to be uh lots of kids we want lots of kids we're, we're planning for like 100 kids all right so we're just up front telling you we want all of your kids to come and so um, it's going to be crazy. It's going to be great. They're going to have a great time. They're going to learn a lot about Jesus that week. And maybe, hey, if you stick around, maybe you'll learn something too. And we would love for you to be a part of that. So it's June the 5th through the 9th. Hey, we've been in a series of messages uh, for several weeks now. Uh, all leading up to this point, this Sunday, we've been in the Gospel of Mark. And the purpose of these messages through the Gospel of Mark is just to highlight some really important passages of Scripture in the life of Jesus. And it all culminates with this, with this passage that we're going to look at today because we're at the end of the Gospel of Mark. So we're going to be in Mark chapter 16. It's the last, book, or last chapter in the Gospel of Mark. And, and here's the thing. The proclamation of what happened on Easter, it really is the most pivotal moment in all of human history. I said Friday night that, that all of history had been leading up to Good Friday. It had been leading up to that point in history. But really it was two it was a two-parter because what happened on Friday was extremely valuable and you can't have what happened on Sunday without what happened on Friday. But but really all of history it, from, from the beginning of the world from the moment God said let there be light and there was light had been had been building to this Sunday. 
to this moment in history. And unfortunately, that story, that, that, that moment is often not as well known as the Christmas story. Now, don't get me wrong. The, the Christmas story, I mean, it's vitally important. You can't, you can't have one without the other. But, but oftentimes, we know where, where the Christmas story is. It's Luke 2, right? We, we read that every, every Christmas. But oftentimes, we, we kind of gloss over the Easter story. And so I, wa- I want us to hear the Easter story from the perspective of, of the Gospel of Mark. So it's Mark chapter 16, verses 1 through 8. Here's what it says. When the Sabbath was over, Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of James, and Salome brought spices so that they might go to anoint Jesus' body. Why did they go do that? Because he was dead, right? That's, he was dead. So they, so they were going to do that. So very early on the first day of the week, just after sunrise, they were on their way to the tomb and they asked each other, who will roll the stone away from the entrance of the tomb? But when they looked up, they saw that the stone, which was very large, had been rolled away. And as they entered the tomb, they saw a young man dressed in a white robe sitting on the right side, and they were alarmed. I mean, that's not exactly what they were expecting to find, was it? It'd be surprising to us, too. And so it says, don't be alarmed. You're looking for Jesus the Nazarene who, who was crucified. He has risen. He is not here. See the place where they laid him, but go tell his disciples and Peter, he's going ahead of you into Galilee. I think that's interesting. Peter was a disciple, right? But he says, go tell the disciples and Peter. Peter, you remember what happened on that, uh, in the crucifixion, right? Peter denies Jesus. He's, and so maybe he's feeling a little bit out of the group now. Maybe the group is saying, hey, Peter, you, you had your chance and you kind of blew it. And so this, this angel, we assume an angel, says, hey, make sure to include Peter in this. He's going ahead of you into Galilee and there you will see him just as he told you. Trembling and bewildered, The women went out and fled from the tomb. And they said nothing to anyone because they were afraid. That's interesting to me. That that's how Mark's gospel ends. It seems kind of like a strange way to end a book. Because it doesn't end with great courage or great hope. But with trembling and bewilderment. Women fleeing in silence, not sure if what they've heard is true. And, you know, they're they're afraid. But as we're going to see, the, the way that this story ends is one of the reasons that we can believe this story is true. I mean, if somebody tried to make this up, they wouldn't end the story that way. They, they would end it in, in other ways, with, with great courage, with great hope, with, with everything working out just the way it was supposed to. They wouldn't end with people walking away going, I'm not sure if this is true. I'm scared. I don't know if I should tell anybody about this. In fact, some people thought this ending wasn't very good, and so they tried to add some endings to the the book of Mark. If you look in some of your modern translations, uh, you will find there's a a section that says, you know, this wasn't included in the original manuscripts because somebody didn't like the way it ended. And so they tried to add some more things to it. But you see, that's one of the unique things about Christianity. When you compare it to any other faith in any other religious movement, Christianity, it traces its origin, it traces its history back to one particular event or one particular day see that's not true about buddhism or or judaism or islam or or atheism it's not true about any other religious group one day there was no such thing as a church and then suddenly overnight there was suddenly there was a, a group of people who believed in the resurrection of jesus and they even suffered the most extraordinary things because they believed that 
know, there are four biographies of Jesus' life in the New Testament. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. And, and all four, they all have this in common. That the last week of Jesus' life is given the most attention. That's unprecedented in any biography. You, you don't find that in any other uh, historical figure's life. Why would it be written like that? It's because these early followers insisted with remarkable unity that, that this one event, the resurrection of Jesus, it, it created the church. And, and everything centered around this one thing, that Jesus was who he claimed to be, that he, he predicted his death, he died, and he predicted his resurrection, and he came back to life. Everything centered around that one moment in history. In our days, many people would think the resurrection is, is good news. But if they're honest, if we're honest, we may not believe it's true news. The, the thinking kind of goes like this. You know, in the ancient days, people didn't have, they didn't have science, so they were a bit gullible. You know, we, we look back at some of the medical things that they believed, and we go, wow, wow, how did, how did anybody ever believe that, right? So, so when Jesus died... You know, they, they, they think, okay, well, some people felt kind of a vague sense of his presence. And, and it was, his, his presence was just kind of still inspiring to them. And so eventually over time, those stories, they, they morphed into, well, he was actually present. But that theory is only plausible if we don't take the time to understand how people in, in Jesus' day thought. It's, it's plausible if we ignore the historical and the cultural context of what was going on. You see, when the resurrection took place, the women knew it was true news. Those three women that showed up at the tomb that day, there was no doubt in their mind that they knew it was true. But it took them a while to understand that it was good news. What, what I want us to do in the, in the couple minutes that we have left together this morning is, is to see what happened through their eyes. See, many of us, we don't understand, we don't really take the time to understand that there's a backstory to this idea of resurrection. And, and the backstory is critical to understanding Easter. It's also a powerful reason for, for understanding that the resurrection of Jesus really did happen. To help us understand what people in the first century must have felt when, when they heard of Jesus' resurrection, really, it's not the, the best analogy, but it's probably the best one I could think of, is, is think of the, the movie The Sixth Sense. Anybody ever seen that movie, The Sixth Sense? All right. The movie's like 20 years old, so more of you have seen it than that. Bruce Willis, there's a little kid in it, Haley Joel Osment, I think. Um, the movie, it, it centers around, there, there's, a, there's a, hey, most of you didn't raise your hand, so spoiler alert, okay? There, there's a point in the movie where this little kid looks at Bruce Willis's character, and he says the iconic line, I see dead people. And, and these dead people that this little kid sees, they don't know that they're dead. They, they don't know they're dead. It's, it's kind of a scary movie. You ever sit next to somebody in a movie theater and, and you're watching a, like a horror movie, a scary movie, and, and they just like, they watch the whole movie like this. Like, I don't know how they see anything, but they watch the whole movie like this and then they kind of peek through. And occasionally, like, they'll reach over and just grab your hand and, and grab one finger. And the, and the tighter they can squeeze on that finger, the, the more pain they can inflict, the more they, they seem to enjoy the movie. That's how Christy and I go through, through haunted houses. She... she she walks with her head buried in my back like that and just kind of pushes me through. I'm like, I don't want to go through first. Why? <laughs> but the twist in this movie comes at the end. Again, if you've never seen the movie, spoiler alert. Here's how it ends. Bruce Willis' his character at the end realizes that he's one of the dead people. 
The whole time, throughout the whole movie, he's dead. He didn't know it. Now keep that in mind because we're going to come back to that. Because the human race has, has always been troubled by what happens when you die. In fact, we're going to talk about that in a sermon coming up this summer. In, in the ancient world, some people believe that when you die, you just kind of go out like, like a candle, like one of these, if we just turn around and blew them out. There was an ancient epitaph that was so popular because of their line of thinking that, that it had versions in Latin and Greek, and it, was, it, it read this on, on many tombstones. It says, I was not. I was. I am not. I don't care. It's a real cheery thing to put on somebody's tombstone, isn't it? But that was the line of thinking for a lot of people during that time. There, there were other people who, who would believe in an underworld, uh, sometimes called Hades, where, where the departed spirit would, would go after death, and in this underworld their spirits just kind of had a shadowy existence, but, but they couldn't ever come back to this world. The Jews, though, they were completely different in their belief about the afterlife. See, the one thing that they believed even long before Jesus had come on the scene was they believed in a resurrection. The, the Jews had long believed that, that the problem isn't just that we all die, but the problem is that this world is a mess and it's filled with pain and suffering and we can't fix it. They, they believed that from, from all of their existence that, that humans could not fix the mess of the world. They believe that there's a great God who created all things and that one day He's going to bring all the righteous back to life and He's going to heal all of creation and disease will be no more and, 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 and all of the things that have plagued the world are going to be gone. They believed all of that. They believed that the resurrection was, was not just about the afterlife, but that it was about a God-perfected, God-redeemed, God-set right life. They believed that God would step in and forgive the sins of His people, and establish justice, and end suffering, and heal creation, and, and then resurrect His people to enjoy this new creation. And they believed that when this happened, it would be the most dramatic, and obvious, and undeniable done in mass to all of God's children. And this is important. They believed it would all happen at the end of history. They believe that, that we're living in the, this age, but, but when the resurrection occurs, it's going to usher in a new age. There's a new age to come. And while just about everybody else in the ancient world believed that life was an endless cycle, Israel introduced to the human race this idea that history was headed somewhere. That there was a destination for it. So what's that have to do with Jesus' resurrection? Well, nobody in Israel would have ever thought to claim that, that the one individual that was going to uh, be the resurrected, that was going to usher in this new age, nobody would have ever thought that that was going to happen in the middle of history. If somebody were to have claimed that, that, that the resurrection has happened, that would that have that been nonsense to them. People would have said, well, hey, has, has disease been eradicated? Has justice broken out? Has suffering ended? You know, no. The answer to all of those is no, so stop talking this nonsense. Saying someone had been resurrected in the middle of history would be like someone today saying, hey, you know, the Cincinnati Reds, their, their first baseman, Joey Votto, he's going to be the only one to win the World Series. Now, if you've watched baseball any of this year so far, you know that that's not going to happen either. But, but it would be like saying that he's going to be the only one that wins the World Series. The rest of the team, they'll just have to wait their turn. That doesn't make any sense at all, right? The World Series is a team sport. It's a team deal. And Jews believed that the resurrection was a team deal. But here's the thing that I love about Jesus, and I think this is what most people love about Jesus, is that Jesus breaks the rules. 
Jesus doesn't play by the same set of rules that, that everybody else seemed to play with, that all the religious leaders, all the religious establishment played by. Jesus breaks the rules just as he had done so many times before in his life. You know, he was a rabbi like other rabbis. But nobody ever taught with the same authority that Jesus taught with. He, he spoke of God like other spiritual teachers did. But nobody, ever, nobody else ever claimed to have that same intimacy that he had with God. Those who followed him knew that there had never been anybody like him before. They believed that he was the Messiah, that he could overthrow Rome and, and usher in God's kingdom. But none of them saw the plot twist that was coming. Even though he told them many times it was coming, that Jesus was going to die. And when Jesus died, even though he had predicted it, even though just days before he told his disciples, hey, I'm getting ready to die, none of his followers said when he died that everything is going according to plan. None of his followers thought that his death was a good thing. In fact, we're told that when it became clear he was going to die, all of his disciples deserted him. The, the picture that we get in all four Gospels is that his followers were disheartened, that they were dismayed, that they were disappointed, they were disillusioned, they, they were dispirited. But then suddenly, they weren't. Suddenly, as a matter of historical record, this same group of people became convinced that Jesus had been resurrected and they were motivated to spread his news at enormous cost to themselves. Some people think in ancient times that, that people were gullible, ready just to believe anything. C.S. Lewis calls that chronological snobbery. Ancient people were not stupid. They, they tended to believe and they understood that dead people tend to stay dead. Ken Davis tells the story of a woman who, who looked out her window and, and she saw her German shepherd just shaking the life out of her neighbor's rabbit. Her family didn't get along particularly well with the neighbors and so she just knew this was going to be a disaster. And so she grabs a broom and she, she runs outside and she just starts smacking the dog as hard as she can until the dog dro drops the rabbit. She picks this rabbit up, up, this lifeless rabbit, and she knows this is not going to be good. So in, in a moment of desperation, she, she takes the rabbit inside. She, she gives it a bath, a dead rabbit, a bath. She, she blow dries it and, and tries to get it as fluffy as she can get it. And then she sneaks back into the neighbor's yard and places it back in the cage. About an hour later, she hears screaming coming from her neighbor's backyard. And so she runs outside and she says, what's the matter? And the, the neighbor says, it's our rabbit. Our rabbit, he died two weeks ago and we buried him and now he's back. <laughs> Look, people in the ancient world knew that dead rabbits tended to stay dead. N.T. Wright says this, he says, There were many messianic movements in the first century. And in every case, there would be, a, there would be Messiah was crucified by Rome, just like Jesus was. But in not one other single case do we ever hear the slightest mention of these disappointed followers claiming that their hero had been raised from the dead. They knew better. And why did they know better? Because as we've already seen, resurrection was not supposed to be a private event. It was a team sport. If you were following a particular would-be Messiah uh, and he was crucified by Rome, you had really one of two options. You could disband the movement or you could look for a new would-be Messiah. And as we would expect, Jesus' followers believed they were finished when Jesus was executed. But then two things happened. Two things happened. First, witnesses saw that the tomb was empty. And then secondly, Jesus appears to his followers. 
And it was the combination of these two factors that was overwhelming. One without the other wouldn't do it. If it was just an empty tomb, but Jesus didn't appear to anybody, you could just say, well, it was a case of grave robbery. Somebody, somebody robbed the grave and, and they've hid him somewhere. But, but Jesus did appear. The Apostle Paul wrote within two decades of Jesus' life that the risen Christ had appeared to more than 500 disciples and, and, five, uh, to, and the other disciples, Peter and, and the other 12. On the other hand, if, if people had reported that they had seen Jesus, but the tomb was still there, it still had Jesus' body in it, skeptics would just say, well, hey, you're just, you're just seeing things. You're, you're hallucinating. It, look, if the Romans could have produced a body, they would have produced a body. The, the graves of heroes and especially crucified messiahs were commonly venerated as shrines by their followers. The problem for Jesus was that his tomb was empty. There is simply... This is simply not a story that could have been made up by somebody because it violated their, their understanding of what was going to happen in history. There's another reason, though, that we know that the resurrection really happened. Mark, Mark says the empty tomb was first discovered by who? By Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of James, and Salome. And you know what all three of these people have in common? They're all women. Nowadays, we probably wouldn't think a whole lot about that. It, it wouldn't even cross our radar. But, but in ancient days, in, in ancient Israel, women were so low on, in, in status, they were so low on the totem pole, so to speak, that, that they were not regarded as credible witnesses. In fact, women could not testify in court. If you had committed a, a, a terrible crime and the only eyewitnesses to that crime were women, you were likely to go scot-free. How extraordinary then that Mark points out that the first eyewitnesses to this empty tomb were women. In fact, all four Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, all point out that the women were the first witnesses to that. Look, if you were going to make up a story about Jesus' resurrection in that day and age, there was absolutely no advantage, none, to claiming that women were your first eyewitnesses. It would have undermined the credibility of your claim. The, the only plausible explanation for why all four Gospels say that the, the first witnesses of an empty tomb were women is that it was women who found the empty tomb, and the tomb was, in fact, empty. It, it wasn't long, too, before those who followed Jesus came to understand that what had happened didn't just affect Jesus. This was the twist that nobody saw coming. They, they began to piece together that the age to come had come. They, they, this, what they had been looking for began that day in Christ when Christ raised from the dead. This little community of followers was not transformed because of some sense of inspiration. They, they now believed they were a resurrection community. They suddenly stopped thinking, hey, we, we were, we're dead and we're going to die and that's going to be the end of it. No, they now thought we were dead. We were dead in our sins. We were cut off from God, but God has, and God has promised that He would fix the world, that, that He would forgive sin and that He would heal suffering. He promised that He would redeem humanity. And, and all of that, that, that healing and that redemption, it has begun now. See, God is being faithful to the promise that He made in Jesus because through the resurrection of Jesus. And soon after the resurrection, the followers of Jesus, they realized that when Jesus died on the cross, it was more than just His death. They realized that it was their death too. They, they, they just didn't know it when it was happening. The resurrection for them, it, it took the resurrection for them to see the depth of what had actually happened on that day. They, they realized on the third day that the, the, the greatest step in human history was taken. 
that the stone was rolled away and, and Jesus stood at the threshold of that tomb. And then he took this step that changed the world because he exited the tomb. How many other people do you know that have ever walked out of their grave? I mean, just think about that for a moment. Look, we've all experienced the death of loved ones. We all know people that have died. How many of them have ever come back to life? I mean, physically in, the, in, in your lifetime. None of them. And see, that's where this gets personal. Because there's one more step that needs to be taken by each of us. A, a friend of mine recently shared how she had spent a great deal of her, of her life far from God. And over time, she realized that, that the limitations of her, of her own self-sufficiency and her pride but she still thought, you know, I can't just believe in God. I need more information. And so she took about a year and she studied the Bible and she studied God and she studied all the things that were written about God away from the Bible. And, and what she eventually came to the conclusion was that her problem was not a lack of information. She had all the information she needed. Her problem was commitment. She never actually surrendered her life over to God. Because she knew that if Jesus had been raised from the dead, that fact alone changed everything. And so this lady decided she wanted to confess her sins. That she wanted to receive forgiveness and start a new life. But she wanted this change to be really clear. She wanted this moment to be something that she wouldn't forget. And so here's what she did. She went home and she stood in her kitchen. And she stood at the threshold between her kitchen and her living room. And she said aloud, she said, God, when I step across that line, I want you to know that I'm leaving my old life behind. I'm leaving behind my old sin. I want, you, I, I want to be forgiven, and I want to be your child. I want Jesus to be my forgiver and my friend and my leader and my Savior. And then you know what she did? She took a step, and she stepped across that line. She, she told me in an email, she said, that's the biggest step I have ever taken in my life because I entered into a relationship with God. And she said, now when I have problems or I have questions or I have doubts, I remember that line. I remember that step. And I remember that he's with me. Have you ever taken that step? Because if you haven't, today's a great day to take that step. Today's a great day to step away from sin and to step into a relationship with God. Years ago when we were on vacation... We were staying at a hotel with a swimming pool, and Noah and Eli, they were really little, maybe three or four. And, and I haven't told this story to anybody ever before, okay? So you all are hearing it for the first time. My wife is also hearing it for the first time. We were standing at a, we were staying at a hotel that had a swimming pool, and, and the, like I said, the kids were little. They were like three and four years old, and I'm in the pool, and they're outside the pool. They're running around the pool and jumping into the pool, and I'm catching them. And, and I kept telling them, hey, don't run. If you run, you might slip and fall into the pool, and, and you might drown. And that'd be bad. I don't want you to drown. Well, apparently those warnings were a little, a little more intimidating, a little more scary than I had intended for them to be. And so at one point, while Eli was jumping into the pool, waiting for me to catch him, Noah slipped and he fell into the pool, and he went underwater, and he, you know, it wasn't real deep, but he, he went to the bottom real quick. And I, and I reached down, and I grabbed him and pulled him right back up. And when I pulled him back up, he came up and he's just sobbing. Just, just, I don't know why I'm sobbing. Anyway, he's just sobbing. And he says, Daddy, I drowned, I drowned, I drowned. I said, no, no, you didn't drown. 
You didn't drown. You weren't even close to drowning. That's not what drowning is. You were a mile away from drowning. So let's not tell mom about this. <laughs> because mom probably wouldn't understand what, what I understand about this. That I, your father, was watching you the whole time. And you were never in danger. And when you went under that water, my arms were right here and I was strong enough to bring you back up. So we don't have to tell mom about this, all right? The story of the resurrection is not just good news. It's true news. And when Jesus says, whoever lives and believes in me will never die. That's not just a metaphor. That's not just a catchy saying. It's not just a, a cliche that's supposed to make us feel good about ourselves. It's not just some vague hope. It means that death has no power to take you from the arms of the Father. That guilt can't separate you from God. That whatever bad news you have faced, if you have crossed that line, if you have trusted Jesus, you have a resurrection coming. We don't grasp that, I don't think. That, that we have a resurrection coming. Look, to the elderly person who's, whose health is frail and almost gone, you don't have to live in fear. Because you have a resurrection coming. To, to the devastated husband whose, whose wife has left you and, and you just feel betrayed and alone. Look, you don't have to live like a loser because you have a resurrection coming. To, to the frightened parents of a depressed child. You, you don't have to live with the burden and the weight of that blame. You have a resurrection coming. To the anxious worker who has lost their job, you have a resurrection coming. To the guilt-ridden addict who is, who is hiding in the shadows of shame, don't be ashamed because you have a resurrection coming to the lonely young person just longing to be loved. You have a resurrection coming. Whoever you are. Whoever. If you have taken that step, that all-important step of faith, the most important step you will ever take, you are living in a new reality. The Father's arms are plenty strong enough to pick you up and to hold you. They have not lost any of their power because you have a resurrection coming because of the resurrection of Jesus. Let me pray for us.